On July 15th, 1953, John Christie was hanged for the murder of his wife, Ethel Christie. But how many other people had he murdered? And how did his life lead him to becoming a serial killer? Let's talk about it and get so scared. Theme music. has played. Right now, just going to throw out some trigger warnings. This is a true crime case. We're going to get into sexual assault, there's murder, and there is a child death. So, if you don't want to hear that, that's what's in this episode. So, you, I, I mean, you can still listen to it, but just don't get upset with us for hearing it, because I told you. I told you. Also, I'm Colin. I'm the Nemean Cannon. And joined by Caitlin, as always, and we're the So Scared Podcast. Just want to start off saying, as I normally do when I don't forget, that don't forget to share the podcast if you like it, rate, review it, do all the stuff, tell your friends. Word of mouth is the best thing you can do for us right now, so word that mouth up. But yeah, I know this whole, like, this is, like, we're getting into true crime. This is our first, like, normal true crime. Like, no mystery, straight facts, just, you know, telling you a thing that happened in history. Kind of first time doing that. So, a little different, but what are your thoughts? Where do you think we're going with this, honey? What are your, I, have, have you remember ever hearing about John Christie? Yeah. That's it. No From Bailey Sarian. Yeah. Um, I don't remember much, honestly. Yeah. So. We'll see if I got any information she didn't have. Who knows? Only if, if I don't have anything she didn't have, then the only difference is we're not doing makeup right now. So, you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, baby. So, we're going to get into John Christie. Also, oh, I was going to say, the reason I chose John Christie to do next is because our last episode with Agatha Christie, and I was like, Christy, Christy. Nice. Yeah, double up. I did. I meant to Google it, but I'm pretty sure there's no relation between the two, although they did both live in the UK around the same time period. So, like, while all of this was happening with John Christie, Agatha Christie was still alive. In fact, like, John Christie was alive during Agatha Christie's disappearance. Wow. Yeah. They're only, like, there's only, like, a nine-year age difference between him and Agatha from, like, when they were born. So it's like, oh. So, just a weird thing, and that's why I chose this one. But, okay, early life. John Christie. He was born near Halifax on April 8th, 1899. He was the sixth of seven children. His father was Ernest John Christie, and he was a carpet designer. Apparently, Ernest didn't show many emotions to his children and would punish them over minor things. In his early life, John had a troubled relationship with his father. And then there was John's mother, who coddled and bullied John 
along with all of John's older sisters. Later on, John's childhood peers would describe him as a queer lad, and that he kept himself to himself and was not very popular. John also feared feared his grandfather, which essentially because like father, like son. John's grandfather was like John's father, not good. Yeah. But on March 24th, 1911, just before John's 12th birthday, his grandfather died after a long illness at the age of 75. His grandfather passed away in Christie's house, and Christie would later on say that seeing his grandfather's body laid out gave him a sense of power and well-being, because a man he had once feared was now only a corpse. I remember that from Bailey Searing's video. Yeah. Which I've just, like, early on, like, just before his 12th birthday, you can already see, like, this kid that's is... That's not right. Yeah, that's not normal. This kid isn't right. Like, there is something... Not quite good. Although, I mean, his grandfather did suck. So, can you blame him, really, for being like, hey, you're dead? I mean, no, but also power? Yeah, it doesn't, like, it's not like John I feel more him. of a, like, a relief should be the emotion. Yeah. Kind of like, I don't have to deal with this anymore. That's true. Like, power, it's not like John killed him. It's not like he's like, oh, I did that. It's just like, all it is is like, you're dead, I'm alive. Like, that's not really power, that's just life. I don't yeah. know. Like, that's not something. I don't know. When Christie was 11, he had won a scholarship to Halifax second, Secondary School. His favorite subject was algebra, but he was also good at history and woodwork. Later on, it was found that Christie had an IQ of 128, which was above average, which I believe... I can't remember. I remember looked. I looked up what the average adult IQ was, and it was like somewhere around like ninety ish, I think. So yeah, Christy had an above average IQ. From what I've heard, there's better intelligence tests than IQ, but I could mm-hmm. not remember what there is. Like IQ is like, oh yeah, you're good IQ, but it's like that's not useful for like everyday life. Like that's mm-hmm. just like cool, whatever. He sang in his church choir and was a Boy Scout. You know, average school. Can you be quiet? My laptop is on. So, kind of average school church kid thing. You know, it's singing. I sing in a choir in my church as well. I didn't. Do, I did not and no. go to church. So, yeah, I didn't do Boy Scouts though. So. And on April 22nd, 1913, he got done with school and worked as an assistant projectionist, which is, like, people who do the projectors and theaters. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he was an assistant to a projectionist. He helped in theaters. In Chrissy's adolescence, he began having problems with impotence or erectile dysfunction. Due to this, his first attempts at sex failed, and he was called... Reggie No Dick and Can't Do It Christie. Wow. Those are so creative. Yeah. Not really. Amazing nicknames, honestly. Like, Bullies ooh. always come up with the most stupid nicknames. It's like, you couldn't have tried a little harder? Yeah, like, come on. Like, there's... His name is John Christie. Um, I'm trying to think of a better one. Uh, John uh, No Dicky Christie. 
Okay, I'm going to not think about this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> throughout his adolescence, okay, that's, yeah, he was called those names throughout his adolescence. This was lifelong, like his erectile dysfunction, and throughout most of his life, he was mostly only able to perform the deed with prostitutes. So. Why? Well, it's just what he was able to do, I guess. Okay. I don't know. Maybe it was the... I don't know, honestly. Maybe it was just like... Like said, it's a stranger? Yeah. It's a stranger. It's like, oh, if I can't do it with this prostitute, I'll just go out and find a different one and just, like, work that time. I have no clue, honestly. Hmm. Uh, But he he has a lot of... Throughout his whole life going on getting older, there's a lot of prostitutes with him. World War One started after this. And in September of 1916, Christie enlisted, and on April 12th, 1917, he was called to join the 52nd Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire Regiment to serve as an infantryman. Uh, A year later, his regiment was sent to France. Two months later, in June of 1918, he was injured in a mustard gas attack and spent a month in a military hospital. So... Mustard gas, not good. That stuff's not swell. Later in life, Christie claimed that this mustard attack left him blind and mute for three and a half years, and this period of muteness made him unable to talk much louder than a whisper for the rest of his life. However, the Scottish journalist Ludwig Kennedy wrote that there were no records of Christie's blindness, and that he may have lost his voice when he was admitted to the hospital, but he wouldn't have been discharged as fit for duty afterwards if he was still blind and mute. So it seems like Kennedy argued that Christie's inability to talk loud was a psychological reaction to the gassing, not lasting toxic effects, and that this reaction and Christie's exaggerations of what happened to him were due to an underlying personality disorder that caused him to exaggerate illness to get attention and sympathy. I looked Seems up. Seems like it. Yeah. It's like, I mean, the, the syndrome of faking symptoms and exaggerating symptoms or causing symptoms in yourself to make it seem like you have a disease is Munchausen syndrome. So it's like maybe Christy had some kind of underlying kind of Munchausen esque syndrome that caused him to be like, ooh, I got gassed. I would gassed. understand that with his childhood. Yeah. He's kind of begging for somebody to care. I mean, the, he was one of seven kids. I mean, I doubt he got a ton of attention. No, and if he did, it was most likely negative. Yeah. So he probably saw this as a chance to get somebody to care. On October 22nd, 1919, Christy was demobilized from the army. Later on, December 13th, 1923, he joined the Royal Air Force, but he was discharged from there on August 15th, 1924, so less than a year later. After World War One comes marriage. First comes World War One, then comes marriage, then comes baby in a baby carriage. Nice. There was no baby. They don't have a kid. Don't worry about that, because that would not be good. Um... So Ethel Simpson, she was also from Halifax, and they met on May 10th, 1920. They went to the register office and got married, like, pretty quickly. 
Like, they met, they were like, ah, oh, hey, let's just... No wedding, they just signed a license? Yeah, they just went to the register office and got married. Nice. But even after marriage, Christie's impotence continued, and so did his visits to prostitutes during the marriage. Wow. Yeah. Uh, early into Dude, their... Dude, should have just not gotten married. Yeah, it's like, why? Why? <laughs> early into their marriage, Ethel got pregnant. But she suffered a miscarriage, so they did not have a kid. And then on January 10th, 1921... I think that was probably fate. They were like, man, let's yeah. not let this person have a child. It's like miscarriage, like that's horrible, like I feel bad. But it's also knowing what happens with Christy later on in life, this may have been for the best to not have him have a kid. Yeah. It's like, I don't think... He wouldn't it... have known how to be a father. Yeah. It's like Even a, if he wasn't turned out to be a killer. Yeah. He wouldn't have, he didn't have good fatherly role models like no. leading into this. So on January 10th, 1921, Christie started as a postman, but he got convicted for stealing postal order, postal orders, which I wrote down a postal order is pretty much like a money order. It was back then. If you went to a post office, you could buy a postal order mail it to somebody, and then whoever you mail it to could take that order to a post office and exchange it for almost the same amount of money that you bought it for. So it's essentially just a way of mailing money kind of safely. Nice. Except for when your postman, like Christy, steals it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he stole postal orders on both February 20th and March 26th, and for this he was sentenced to three months imprisonment on April 12th, 1921, he served his sentence in HM Prison, Manchester, and he was released June 27th. And then about a year and a half later, on January 15th, 1923, he was convicted of obtaining money on false pretenses and of violent conduct. And for this, he was put on 12 months probation. So after this, in 1924, about four years into their marriage, Ethel and Christie got separated, like, they just, yeah, yeah, they just separated at this point. Christy moved to London, and Ethel worked at an engineering company and later on at an electrical company. So, like, I don't know what she was doing at them, but, I mean, those are pretty decent. Those sound like nice jobs. Yeah. But eventually, her and her siblings moved to Sheffield, and in 1924... Are you sure it's not Sheffield? You might be right. Sheffield. Haha, <laughs> the nanny. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> really? Yeah. You know that from the nanny? Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. Sheffield. My bad. Uh, that's the problem. What the heck just happened? <laughs> she caught a bug. Oh, my goodness. Way to go, Rosie. She just ate a bug out of the sky. Thanks, Rosie. Nice. Uh, this is the issue with the last episode with Agatha Christie and this one. There's a lot of, like, these names in UK that, like, I don't know how to pronounce them correctly. So, there's going to be more mispronunciations. Mispronunci- mispronunciations. <laughs> um, in 1924, Christie, when he was in London, he committed two counts of larceny, which is just pretty much theft. It's a fancy yeah. Yeah. And he received three months for one, and for the second one, he received six months. And on September 22nd, 1924, in HM Prison, Wandsworth. Later on, after getting out of prison, he eventually worked as a lorry driver for two and a half years. Until 
Can you guess what happened? Why would he? Why would he lose that he job? He kills somebody, or mm. he steals. He was arrested for assault. He uh, hit his roommate Maud Cole over the head with a cricket bat. What the heck? Uh, yeah, the magistrate described this as a murderous act and sentenced Christie to six months hard labor and sent him right back to HM Prison, Ronsworth. And then later on, November 1st, 1933, uh, he was convicted of stealing a car and again was sent to HM Prison, Wandsworth for three months. So he had a lot of uh, back and forth between prisons. So uh, he was released from that prison uh, in January of 1934. After getting out of prison, he and Ethel got back together. Yeah, Girl, are you crazy? I don't, like, with all of his... He assaulted somebody, went back to prison, like... He went to prison. He got worse. Why would you go back to him? Yeah. Um, But after getting back together, he ended his life with petty crime. Like, he wasn't... Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. But he continued going after prostitutes. Uh Uh-huh. Yep, there it is. Yeah. Uh, In 1937, they moved into the... The way I wrote my notes just, like, made me die for a second. Uh, he, uh, oh, what? Wow. I just, like, misspelled, like, mistyped, and I was like, what the heck am I trying to say here? Uh, 1937, they moved into... I just got confused again by what I was trying to say. Gosh, why am I reading this? Uh, top floor... They moved in the top floor flat of 10 Rillington Place, which... That's that's like when you talk about John Christie, most people talk about 10 Rillington Place because this is where all the murders happen. It's, a, it's 10 Rillington Place. I saw it described as the Strangle House. So, yeah, it's a, it's it's well known. <laughs> I'm not... If you heard that snort, that was because Rosie is like booping Caitlin's finger, not because the place is known as the Strangle House. I don't find that funny. Strangulation, not a joke. So in 1937, they moved into the top floor flat. December of 1938, they got to move into the ground floor flat instead, which, I mean, it wasn't a great house. It was a rundown area. This area of London was, like, rundown. The house was kind of rundown. But the second floor flat that they started in was just two rooms. It was just a living room, kitchen, and a bedroom. And that was it for the like the top second floor flat they started in. But when they moved into the ground floor, the gla- ground floor had a separate living room and kitchen. So there was a living room, kitchen, and then bedroom. So they got an extra room. They didn't have a bathroom? Um, there's an outdoor, like, wash house, and I think there is a bathroom, but I'm not positive. And so, yeah, so they got to move to the ground floor. A little more room, and they were close to the above-ground section of the Metropolitan Line, and so there was a lot of train noises. Oh, man. Yeah. I could not deal with that. Which, Caitlin and I, we lived in an apartment for a while. The first apartment we lived in together, that was, like, literally right by a train. Like, we were right next to it. It sucked. Especially at night, because since it's dark out, they have to, like, constantly blow their horn to be safe, I guess. And it sucks at night when a train comes by. And then the building was so badly made, it shook the whole thing. And we were on the second floor. 
So yeah. it was like extra and there, I mean, there's only two floors, but yeah, we were on the second floor. My The bedroom was on the side of the building towards the train tracks. There was a window. It was super. It's a, it, so we know this right here, a train nearby, it sucks. It's not fun. Um, so after this, uh, then World War II started. So got to get both those World Wars in there. They both pop up everywhere. Uh, so Christy applied to join the War Reserve Police. He didn't go to war. He stayed in London to work as a police, and he got accepted because they failed to check his criminal record. What? Yeah. They didn't check How it. do you... What? Yeah. Okay. So he was assigned to the Harrow Road Police Station, and he met Gladys Jones, and he began an affair with her. But that ended in mid-1943 because her husband came back from the war. And I guess somehow her husband learned about the affair, went to where Gladys lived, and found Christy there, and he proceeded to then assault Christy. Which, fair. You were just at World War II. Come home to find out your wife is cheating on you with this dude who has a very extensive Which, criminal record. I, yeah, but also, like, be mad at your wife, too? Yeah, I be mean, mad at the wife, too. Yeah, it's her fault, too. Definitely. Gosh. I think it's kind of stupid in shows and movies, this trope of, like, oh, the girl cheats on the boyfriend or husband and then he just like knocks the guy out and then just like walks away with the girl and it's like but but why would you want to stay with the her tango man yeah it's like why would you want to still be around her she just cheated on you like do more leave her be better <laughs> so nice. yeah after this uh christy met ruth this is a name we have for first first it's F-U-E-R-S-T. First? First? Ruth First. Uh, she was 21, and she worked as a munition worker, but added to her income by occasionally engaging in prostitution. She was trying to get some clients. Ethel was out of town visiting relatives. And so on August 24th, 1943, Christie invited her to come to his place to... Exchange goods for services, mm -hmm. if you know. Afterwards, after they did the deed, uh, Christy grabbed some rope, and he strangled her to death on his bed. So. Literally why? I have no clue. Like, why? <laughs> uh, I never found any reason for him that he gave for why he decided to do this. Also, why he had rope nearby to strangle her with. But... Yeah, they just, they did the deed and then he killed her. Um, afterwards, he hid her body under his living room floorboards. Oh my God. But the next evening, he buried her in the back garden. So, yeah. At the end of 1943, oh, yeah, he did this while he was also still working for the police. So, That's great. Yeah. Swell. Which, I mean, he wasn't, like, a full cop. Like I said, he, like, applied for the War Reserve Police, which is essentially, like, ooh, a bunch of people just left for war. We need more cops. We'll just take you. You can be a cop. So it's, like, it's, like, uh, it's not, like, I don't know. 
he's not a real police. He didn't do all like the school and like stuff. Yeah, he was just a placeholder. Yeah, he was just there. Um, at the end of 1943, he resigned from the police, and the next year he got a job as a clerk in a radio factory. And here he met Muriel Amelia Eddy. And on October 7th, 1944, he invited her to his place because he had made her a special mixture that could cure her bronchitis. Okay. Yeah. So she went back to his house with him. She sat down with her back to Christy, and she had her breathing through a tube connected to a jar. So I guess, like, he told her, like, the mixture was in the jar, and she was supposed to breathe it to help her. And inside the jar... There was Friar's Balsam, which is like, it was just like a, a balsam. Like, it was, it was just stuff. It's, it's a benzene resin in ethanol, and it had a very strong smell. And so, while she was sitting there with her back to Christy, just breathing in this, like, balsam, Christy came from behind, and he put a second tube into the jar, and this tube was connected to a gas tap. And the friar's balsam covered the smell of the domestic gas, uh, which domestic gas in 1940s was coal gas, and it had a carbon monoxide content of 15%, and breathing that in just knocked her unconscious. After knocking her unconscious with that, he then raped her and strangled her to death, and then buried her in the back garden as well. How would his wife not know that there was bodies in the backyard? I don't know. Hey, why is the, like, grass being messed with? Like, what's, why are there piles of dirt here? Yeah, it's like, hey, what's, like, what's going on over here? I, I don't know. I'm just know. doing some gardening. Oh, okay, what'd you, guard, what'd you plant? Jesus Christ! Thank you. fattest cat just freaking climbed up our shelf. I told you. He's so fat. How does he do that? Sometimes it'll just sit there and hang there. Not even, like, go up. What an asshole. Okay. Uh, yeah, I really, I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, maybe it was just like, oop, I buried them. Now I'm going to plant some flowers on them. Like, I, I'm not really sure how nobody noticed. Because, again, this had a multiple floor. This building had multiple flats. So they weren't the only people living in the building. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So how it's did like, that... So nobody How'd that knows. not get noticed? I have no clue. Oh my goodness, cats! I'm gonna freaking eat all of your heads. Okay. So, that was... <laughs> I'm sorry. That was 1944. Four years later, Easter of 1948, Christy and Ethel got new neighbors. These neighbors was Timothy Evans and his wife, Beryl. Beryl. B-E-R-Y-L. Beryl. Yeah, that's how it's made. Moved. They moved into the second floor flat, so the one that they used to, that the Christies used to live into, live, live into, live in, uh, which was above them. And October of that year, the Evans had a daughter, Geraldine. A year later in 1949, the Evans found that Beryl was pregnant again. But they couldn't support another kid, and abortion was illegal. So Christy told them he was an abortionist and could help. But instead, while he was supposedly helping, he strangled Beryl to death. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, he told Timothy that she had died from septic poisoning due to the previous abortion remedies she had tried herself and convinced him to not go to the police. Wow. Yeah. And instead, Christy told Evans to go stay with his aunt in Wales and that he had found a couple to look after Geraldine for him. Why would you believe this guy? I have no clue. Like, I guess you don't even just, know him. He's just your neighbor. Yeah. Like, they lived there for maybe a little over a year. Like, less less than two years. Like, I, I have no clue why he trusted him so much. I guess, like, they kind of knew each other. But, like, I don't know. He probably just saw, like, oh, this dude's just trying to help me, like, help us with the abortion. And, like, he's just trying to be helpful. He's trying to make sure I don't get in trouble for my wife dying. From an attempted abortion, like, oh, he's just doing good things. But, like, no, dude, he is not doing good things. Like, he's doing the opposite of good things. So, Evans, Timothy Evans' mother eventually was like, hey, Timothy, where's my daughter-in-law and granddaughter? And Timothy just couldn't keep up the secret. So, in November of 1949... Evans informed the police that his wife was dead. So the police investigated, and surprise, they did not do very well. They do a very poor investigation. They came and they searched the house, but they found nothing. Not even Christie's two previous victims buried in the garden. Like, they didn't even find that. Uh, They interrogated Evans, and from their first interrogation, it was clear that he did not know that his daughter, like, what happened with his daughter, like where she was. But they interrogated him multiple times until he confessed, quotation marks around that. Evans claimed that he had accidentally killed Beryl by giving her abortion pills and he hid her body in a manhole or a drain in front the of the husband house. Yeah. Confessed? But the... Okay. Yeah. I, I think it was just like he was trying to not get Christy in trouble because... As far as Timothy knows, Christy was just trying to give Beryl an abortion, and she died from previous abortion attempts. So rather than even bring him into it and get him in trouble, he was just going to take the blame for it. And so he told them that she was in a manhole or a drain in front of the house, but when police searched, there was no body there. And this should have prompted, like, a very thorough search, but it it didn't prompt a thorough search because the police did search several times, but all of their searches seemed to be superficial. And apparently they did examine the garden where the other two victims were buried, but they never dug into it. They just kind of went over the top, which Christy even later on would admit that his dog unearthed Muriel's skull, the second victim, Muriel. It, uh, his dog uncovered the skull shortly after the police had searched, which obviously that means the bodies weren't even buried deep. It's like his a dog, dog got it. Yeah. And so Christy just threw the skull into an abandoned, bombed-out house that was nearby. What? Yeah. So, obviously, if they had just searched more properly, the police had just searched properly, they most likely would have found evidence pointing to Christie's past victims, and they probably would have stopped him right there and then, but they did not. They messed up more than just the searches. They mishandled the interrogations because 
Eventually, through these searches, they did find the bodies of Beryl, Geraldine, and a fetus in the wash house. And after this, they showed Evans the clothing and told him where the bodies were found, which ruins any possible confessions from him because now he knows what they were wearing and where they were found. So you can't get him to admit to either of those things and compare it to like what you've already found to prove his confession as real. So it's like you've ruined any possible chance of him, like, of proving his confessions of real or fake, like, right off the bat there. After finding the bodies, they learned that the mother and daughter had been strangled and that Beryl had been assaulted before death because there was facial bruising. Timothy Evans, at this point, claimed that Christie killed his wife in a botched abortion. However, police questioning eventually led to a another... Confession, air quotes, again, from Evans. Air quotes because the alleged confession may have been fabricated by the police because there were several apparent confessions from Evans, but they contained words and phrases such as terrific argument that probably wouldn't have been used by a distressed, uneducated, working-class young man. It doesn't seem right, you know? Like, it just doesn't seem like a man who's found out his wife and daughter were killed would use the phrase terrific argument, considering he's uneducated and young and working class. So, um, Evans was charged with murder, and after this, after being charged with murder, he withdrew his confessions and again said that Christie did it, but this time he was accusing Christie Christy of both the murder of his wife and daughter. Next, we'll be getting into Timothy Evans' trial and more murders from Christie. But first, we have an ad. Go into transition music. Pew, pew, pew. If you're listening to this, I'm guessing you like true crime. And even if you don't like true crime, hear me out for a second, because I've got something great to tell you about. It is the E-Lit Horror Silver Medal Awarded Book, Crazy Is As Crazy Does The Life of a Serial Killer, by John H. Mudgett. This book is a tensely clever first-person psychological horror-slash-thriller that deep-dives into the world of an experienced serial killer. The paperback version is available for purchase via Amazon and Barnes & Noble and is free for Kindle Unlimited readers as an ebook. It is a graphic tale, just as the cover suggests, about the fictional protagonist, John Goodman. He is an amalgam of human predation and darkness, carefully stitched from the ragged shreds of multiple serial killers and mass murderers' lives. Although he is fictional, the scenarios throughout the dark life of Mr. Goodman are firmly rooted in historical characters and events. Crazy is as crazy does, the life of a serial killer tells the story of John growing from a timid criminal into a prolific serial killer, a master of deception, taking you through his 75-year life, ending shortly after the capture of the Golden State Killer in 2008. However, 
like all unreliable narrators, you will be forced to grapple with an important question. Can you accurately separate fact from Goodman's twisted fiction? You'll quickly learn that the real horror unfolding is twofold. The murderous activities described by Goodman himself and the twisted transformations of those around him culminating in a shocking, high-stakes ending. I invite you to check it out on Amazon. It's free to Kindle Unlimited readers. That's Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. Put your own mind through the test. Can you separate the fiction from the true crimes? Oh boy, wasn't that a great ad, honey? It was. Yeah. Okay. Um, back to not good police things. Uh, January 11th, 1950, Evans was put on trial for the murder of his daughter. They decided to pursue, they decided to not pursue a second charge of murder for his wife. So the whole trial, it's like they were only charging Evans just the murder of Geraldine, the daughter. In the trial, the big witness for the prosecution was... Christie. Yeah, you guessed it. John Christie. He was the main a big witness for the prosecution. It seemed that throughout all of this, the police accepted what Christie said at face value because of his time as a war reserve policeman. Oh my goodness. Yeah, the police saw him as one of their own. <sighs> so even despite all of Christie's previous criminal charges and before meeting the Evans, the fact that Christie had claimed to a colleague that he was an abortionist and continued, like, this is aside the point, he also continued to claim that he was an abortionist later on after this to women that he may have seen as potential victims, which, uh, you know, kind of backs Evan's whole thing. But even despite that, they still, you know, believed Christie's and used him as a witness. Uh, during the trial, Christie gave evidence and accounts of fights between Timothy and his wife, and despite Christie's criminal record coming out, they believed him and found Evans guilty. He was going to be hanged January 31st, but he appealed that, and it was changed, but his second appeal failed, and on March 9th, 1950, Timothy Evans was hanged. But so, he didn't do anything. No, he didn't. He did not, but they found him guilty and killed him. Yeah, this is one of the reasons that I'm against the death penalty, because no matter how good you set up your legal system, there's going to be instances like this where innocent people are going to be found guilty, and if they're found guilty for the wrong thing, they're going to be killed. I mean, there's already plenty of innocent people in our prison spending years in jail that they should not be there. Let a, like, this is aside from just, like, the people who have, like, nonviolent drug charges who shouldn't be in jail. Just, like, people who did literally nothing and just were found guilty. Like, they shouldn't be in there. And there's been plenty of people who are innocent who have been executed for being found guilty. It's just, like, ridiculous. Uh, I, don't, I don't like it. Not a fan. So, yeah. After all this, on April 4th, 1950... Uh, Christie lost his job as a grade two clerk because his criminal record had came out. And then on June 12th, 1950, he got a new job as a clerk with the British Road Services. Um, they also had vacant rooms on the first and second floor flats. And at this time, they got new neighbors in both. This isn't really important at all, 
but I just added it in there, that these new neighbors were black immigrants from the West Indies, and this was a problem to the Christies, both John and Ethel, because they were both uh, racist and they didn't like living with these new neighbors. So Christie negotiated with the local law center to have exclusive use of the back garden, possibly to keep space between them and their black neighbors, but also probably to keep anyone from uncovering the human remains that he had buried in the back garden. Yeah. Rosie! Cat, I'm going to throw you. Hey, get out of there. A little twerp. I did not actually throw my cat. I am not that Twitch streamer girl who threw her cat. That's not me. Uh, I don't actually throw my cat, especially while I'm live streaming. December 6th, 1952, uh, Christy resigned from his job. And then eight days later, on December 14th, Christy strangled his wife Ethel in bed, and he hid her body under the floorboards. Uh, to support himself while unemployed after this, Christy sold Ethel's wedding ring and her watch, as well as some furniture. Um, he was receiving unemployment as well, but on January 26th, he forged Ethel's signature and emptied her bank account. And... Later on, he also sold Ethel's clothes, and... That should be a red flag to the bank that he just took all of her money out. Yeah, yeah, you would think that, but, you know, 1950s, they didn't really question white men, I guess, that much. They were just like, oh, you're a white dude emptying your wife's bank account? Like, okay, I guess so. You're in charge of the money in the house, so yeah, you can do that. I don't know why they let her do it. I don't know why nobody looked into it, but nobody looked into it. Why they let him do it? Why? You said her. Oh, why they let him do it? My B. Where was I? Oh, and throughout this time, he would make stories on why she wasn't around. So when her relatives would send letters being like, hey, Ethel, why aren't you writing us? He would write them back saying that Ethel had rheumatism and that she couldn't write. And so that he was writing for her. And then to neighbors who would ask, like, hey, where's your wife at? He would tell them that she was visiting relatives. And when people commented on the bad odors in his house, he started treating the house with strong disinfectants. Because he has a dead body in his floorboards and that's going to smell. In early 1953, Christy met 25-year-old Rita Nelson. She was a pregnant prostitute, and on January 19th, 1953, he convinced her he could help her with an abortion, and he then strangled her and hid her body in the alcove behind the cupboards in his kitchen. Next was 26-year-old Kathleen Maloney, who was also a prostitute, and in February of 1953, he brought her to his house and strangled her as well and also hid her body in the alcove in the kitchen. And finally was 26-year-old Hectorina McLennan. He first met her at a cafe. He met, he met her first at a cafe, but he did meet her and her boyfriend, Alex Baker, on several occasions, which Chris even let the two of them stay at Rillington Place for a bit while they looked for somewhere to live. He eventually met with Hectorina alone, and he persuaded her to go back to his place, at which point he strangled her 
and hid her body in the alcove as well. Um, later on after that, her boyfriend Alex went to Rillington Place trying to find Hectorina, but Christy convinced him he hadn't seen her, and Christy would meet with Alex regularly in the following days to see if he had any news on where she was and to help him search for her. That is another level of fucked up. Yeah, like that's just messed when the, up. The murderer, murderer searches for the person. Yeah, like that is just gross. All three of these victims had been gassed with carbon monoxide and raped before strangling them, which there's this whole thing of people being like, oh, John Christie was a necro- necrophiliac because he would strangle them while raping them. But necrophilia is like the act of having sex with a dead body. It's like he would just kill them while having sex with them. And then once they were dead, he would stop. So technically... Did we know he would stop? According to his accounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure. So, you know, maybe he lied about that. You're correct about that. I did not think about that. Yeah, you know, he's a murderer, so maybe we shouldn't trust him on that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, before... Yeah. So, before he would hide them in the alcove behind the cabinet, he would wrap them in blankets. And after Hectorina, the third victim of these last three... He put wallpaper over the cabinet and covered up the alcove. So. But it's gonna stink. He still has his wife in the floorboard, so I don't think stinking is really a big concern of his, honestly. So, yeah. (laughs) Which, at this point, his wife has been in there for, in his floorboards for, like, four months or something. Like, he's had... He's had her in her... She's been decomposed. He would get bot flies. Yeah. I don't know how nobody noticed that. From American Horror Story. Because she wasn't even in there for four months and he got flies. Mm. But the wife was. And, sorry, that's kind of spoilers. Not really. Um, it's but, an old season you watched. Um, I don't know how that would be not noticed. Yeah, I don't know how nobody saw this, but nobody saw it. March 20th, 1953, after all of that, Christie moved out of 10 Rillington Place. Uh, he fraudulently, he fraudulently subletted his flat to a couple and he took three months of rent from them so that they could stay in his flat. With the smell? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, he just took three months rent from How the hell would people not be like, yo, what's going on, dude? Well, there's a reason why this couple didn't notice anything, because that same evening that they moved in, the landlord came by, and he found the couple instead of Christy. The the landlord hadn't authorized this whole deal. He didn't authorize Christy to let this couple stay in his flat. So, the landlord gave the couple 24 hours to move out. So, the couple didn't even get to stay there. And also... Christy just, like, calmed them out three months rent. Because he was, like... But you would know as soon as you walked in. Yeah, that's true. You would know that, but I guess they I'd just... Walk, like, not even walking in. Like, even just going... By it. By the building. You would smell something. But nobody... They didn't notice. They didn't have time to, like... And react, I, it I wouldn't just be, like, oh, he's a single man and he doesn't really clean. No, it's, like, something's wrong. Smell. Yeah. Somehow, you know, they didn't notice and, like... 
the next day they were moved out, so they didn't get to be there. Um, after they moved out, the landlord allowed the tenant of the top floor flat to use Christie's kitchen. And at this same time, Christie had went to Roten, Roten House, which is a chain of hostels in London. And he went to the Roten House in King's Cross. He booked a room for seven nights. And he booked the room using his real name and address. And on March 24th, that tenant that was using Christie's kitchen was doing a little renovation in the kitchen when he discovered the three bodies in the alcove. So the tenant notified the police, and they searched the flat, and they found Ethel's body under the floorboards and two bodies in the garden. So, at this time, uh, Christy had been at the hostel for four days, but when the news of the bodies being found came out, he left and just wandered London like homeless for a bit. On the morning of March 31st, so about six to seven days later, he was found and arrested. And at first, he only admitted to the murders of the last three women and his wife. In admitting to these murders, he made excuses for all of them. He said that his wife, the murder of Ethel, was a mercy killing and that she was choking to death at the time anyway. I'm picking up my dog. Wait. Okay. Our dog, uh, Buster, is now a guest of the podcast. Whoop. Say hi, Buster. Thank you, buddy. Good. So, Buster is now here. Uh, but he made, yeah. He said that Ethel was choking to death at the time that he strangled her anyway. And the other three women, he said, had tried to take advantage of him, and he had just been defending himself. Okay. Yeah. And eventually, on April 27th, he even admitted to the murder of Beryl Evans, but said that one was a mercy killing as well. But he, for the most part, denied killing Geraldine. However, one time after his trial... He, while talking to a hospital orderly, he indicated that he was responsible for her death, which, I mean, obviously, we all know he killed Geraldine as well, but legally, I mean, he only admitted to it one time after his trial, which people think he didn't want to admit to the murder of Geraldine because that may have messed up his attempts to be found not guilty by reason of insanity and also for his safety from his inmates fellow inmates because people he killed a child yeah people who like pedophiles and like people who kill children and stuff in jail generally do not do well in jail or in prison because the other inmates are like dude that guy's horrible he hurt a child let's go beat him up so he probably did not want to admit to it because he didn't want to get beat up because i hope he did yeah i hope he did <laughs> And on June 5th, Christie confessed to the murders of Muriel, Eddie, and Ruth first, which helped the police identify their bodies because they found the bodies in the garden. But at this point, it had been nearly 10 years, like around 10 years since they were killed. So they were decomposed to just skeletons. So they didn't really know who the bodies were. 
Um, June 22nd, Christie's trial began. He was only tried for the murder of Ethel. And unfun fact, he was tried in the same court that Timothy Evans was tried in three years beforehand. Great. Yeah. Uh, Christie pleaded innocent by reasons of insanity, and he claimed he claimed to have a bad memory involving the events. Whatever. Yeah. Dr. Matheson, a doctor at HM Prison, Brixton, was called as a witness by the prosecution. Uh, he had evaluated Christie, and he testified test he testified that he had a that Christie had a hysterical personality but was not insane. Uh, the prosecution also countered the plea with the fact that Christie had concealed the bodies, showing that he knew what he did was wrong. Exactly. Yeah, because one of the things about proving insanity is that you have to prove that you did not understand what you were doing at the time. The fact that he hid the bodies showed that he knew what he was doing, because he knew it was wrong and tried to hide it. Also, most of them seemed to be premeditated. So it's like already right off the bat, not insanity. Like, you can't really go for that. The trial lasted for four days, and the jury rejected his plea and deliberated for 85 minutes before finding Christie guilty and sentenced him to death. On July 15th at 9 a.m., Christie was hanged at H.M. Prison, Pentonville. His executioner, Albert Pierpoint, had previously hanged Timothy Evans. So, they had the same executioner. Um, after Christie's hands had been tied, he complained that his nose itched, to which Albert responded, it won't bother you for long. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, dude. You're gonna die anyway. So, following Christie's trial, an investigation was launched into the trial of Timothy Evans to determine if he had been guilty or if they had executed an innocent man. The investigation lasted seven days. It was led by John Scott Henderson, and he interviewed Christie before his execution and 20 other people involved in the investigation of Burrell's murder and determined that Timothy had been guilty. Even though Christie had confessed to the murder of Burrell. What the hell? Yeah. According to Henderson, he said that Christie, as a murderer... I guess just was not a reliable source. So they didn't believe him on that. <laughs> but most serial killers admit to their murders. And because they want to like brag about how many people they killed for some fucking reason. Yeah. So you would think that they would believe him, but no. Like most of the time serial killers are like, oh, I killed this many. And it's like in reality, they didn't or they didn't find all them. There was, I didn't put it in my notes. But two years after this first investigation, they attempted to try to do a second investigation, trying to, like, bring up evidence showing that this first one was rushed and that it was pretty much biased, trying to, like, prove, like, they just didn't want to prove that they messed up. Like, they didn't want to say, hey, we messed up. So they rushed this first investigation, didn't really look into real evidence, and just kind of were like, yep, we were right the first time, that's it, and slapped it on. And so... You know, bringing that up, they tried to do a second investigation two years later, but they didn't let them do that one. But eventually, a second inquiry was launched in 1965, so like 12 years later. Uh, This time, it concluded that it was more likely Timothy had only murdered Burrell and not Geraldine 
saying Christine most likely killed Geraldine. And for this, they granted a pardon for Timothy because, if you remember, he had been tried and executed only for the murder of his daughter, Geraldine. So after the second one, they're still like, oh yeah, Timothy probably killed his wife, but he probably didn't kill his daughter. And that's what we tried him for, so we're going to just pardon him, even though we already executed him. The execution of Timothy helped lead to the suspension and eventual abolition of capital punishment in the UK for murder. And January of 2003, Timothy's sister and half-sister were awarded compensation for the miscarriage of justice, which that is a long time afterwards, like 50 Um, years. Money? When you killed my brother for no reason? Wow, great, thanks. Ooh, thanks. Um, Can you bring it back to life? Yeah. Which, around this time, the independent assessor for the Home Office, Lord Brennan, has said, quote, The conviction and execution of Timothy Evans for the murder of his child was wrongful and a miscarriage of justice, and there is no evidence to implicate Timothy Evans in the murder of his wife. She was most probably murdered by Christie. So Lord Brennan believes the second inquiry's conclusion that Timothy probably murdered Beryl should be rejected. But as far as I could find in my little research, it hasn't officially been rejected. So as far as I could find, the government's official stance is still that Timothy most likely murdered his wife, but not his daughter. Even though, for the most part, everybody knows that Christy murdered his wife and that it was not Timothy that did it. This is the last little bit. There was, as far as we know, there was eight known victims, and they spanned ten years. But some people think that Christy may have killed more people. So police, in their investigation, had found pubic hair that Christy collected from some victims. Oh. Yeah. Oof. Mm. Uh, Christy claimed that there was four clumps. Christy claimed these four clumps of pubic hair belonged to his wife and the last three victims. However, only one matched the type of, like, matched the hair type of one of those four victims, and that was Ethel's. So that of the four clumps of pubic hair, they could only match one of them to one of those four victims, and that was Ethel's. So that leaves three clumps of hair unmatched. Now, say two of those were from his two, like, first two victims. Like, they wouldn't be able to match them because those first two victims were too decomposed to match the hair. But even if you say that two of those last three were from those first two, that still leaves one clump of pubic hair with nobody to match it to because it couldn't be from Beryl because she had no pubic hair removed. So, at least, there may be one to three more victims that Christie had murdered and nobody ever knew of. Or it could also be that the police just did a poor job of matching hair and that these were from those last three victims and they just are not doing very good at their job again. Which wouldn't be very surprising, honestly. But, even though with this evidence that there may be more victims, there have been no attempts made to trace any other possible victims of Christie's. They haven't looked into other missing women from around that time or before 1943 and to try to trace it to Christie at all, which 
during that time in World War II, Christie was in a very good position to murder people because he was a special police constable during the war. So he very well may have during that time as a police, like working as a policeman, may have killed more people. But we don't know, and they aren't looking into it to figure that out. So, that is everything I have on John Christie. Did you learn anything new, or Um, anything you didn't remember from hearing before that you may have heard now? um, I'm sure Bailey talked about it, but um, I don't remember um, Evans. Like, I don't remember a lot about him... um, and his trial of not being done good. Yeah, um, she probably talked about it, but I don't. I didn't remember that part. So yeah, that was like a big thing that I saw people talk about online. It's just like it's just like a big thing because it's just like an innocent man killed that the police, like the government, from what I could find, still hasn't admitted that he was completely innocent, which is just bullcrap. Like, come on. But yeah, uh, that is. John Christie killed eight people, maybe more, and caused the death of one innocent man. Uh, So that's technically nine, if not more. Fun times. Not great. He sucked. Also, as far as I could tell, there is no relation between uh, him and Agatha Christie. Just so you know. They have the same last name, but I don't think they're related. So, got any last words to say, honey? No. Go to therapy. Sorry, our cat is being a butthead again. Go away! Yeah. Go to therapy. Um, Don't kill... Don't strangle women. And if you're married, don't go to prostitutes. I've been calling the Nemean Cannon. Uh, we, we don't sign out like this, do we? Who cares? <laughs> you are! Caitlin! We're the So Scared Podcast. Uh, share this. Tell your friends, please. Uh, we need validation. Caitlin doesn't, but I want it. Please. Okay. Bye, everybody. Love you. Oh, it's not stopping. Oh, gosh. How do I stop it?